Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Page 710 in the Bibles in the pews. We're going to be reading this morning the whole of chapter 28 of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like a fig ripe before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do. Rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. So that they will go and fall backwards, be injured and snared and captured. Therefore... Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, 
and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and harrowing the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Please do sit down. Uh, Well, I I want to add my own welcome to uh, you all. It's been uh, wonderful to uh, have uh, interviews uh, with uh, Pete and Lorna and then uh, with Dorian. Welcome uh, to you both, Dorian and Timothy, again. Uh, and of course to Pete and Lorna and to anyone else who's uh, new here you're very very welcome it's great to see you now as uh, Peter helpfully said we're starting a new series uh, well really carrying on a series from this time last year but really starting again in chapter 28 of Isaiah so if this is your first week it's a good week to come and I'd certainly encourage you to turn up your Bibles to page 710 uh, the reading that Godfrey had uh, read for us just a little bit earlier I think it will really help you to have the Bible open in front of you Um, as we sort of tackle this rather complex um, passage. But it isn't that difficult, don't worry. Let's pray together now. Uh, Father, we've been singing that uh, you have spoken through your prophets and that you speak today as your word takes the word of uh, the prophet. And we do pray uh, that you would indeed speak to us deep into the very depth of our being and that it would uh, be transforming uh, for our lives and for your glory. Amen. I was taught many years ago, maybe you were too, uh, to learn from my mistakes. Uh, it's, a, it's a good principle in life. Many people advocate it. Uh, Dale Carnegie said, the successful man will profit from his mistakes and try again in a different way. Richelle Goodrich wrote, many times what we perceive as an error or failure is actually a gift 
And eventually we find that lessons learned from that discouraging experience prove to be of great worth. We can, or should, learn from our mistakes. It's a good principle in life. But here's an even better principle to live by. Learn from the mistakes of others. Don't even make the mistakes in, your, in the first place, but instead look at the mistakes that others have made and be sure you don't do the same thing. Now that seems a lot less stressful to me than learning from my own mistakes. And I've got to say that that is perhaps one of the huge advantages of my job. I often meet with people who, by their own admission, have made huge mistakes. And when they talk to me and pour out their hearts to me and I see the pain of those errors of judgment and the way they're now suffering and the great regret they feel and how they wish they could turn the clock back, I find myself thinking, I really don't want to go there. I don't want to go through that. Learn from other people's mistakes. Now that's what the Lord says to his people in Isaiah chapter 28. In verses one to three, Isaiah points to Judah's near neighbor. So he's really writing to Judah, but he's writing to Judah, the people of God, and he's pointing to their near neighbors, the people of Ephraim. You see that in verse one. And he says, look at the mess they've got themselves into. And then from verse 14 onwards, he says, therefore don't make the same mistake that they've made. Learn from the mistakes of others. In a nutshell, the big mistake Ephraim made was that they refused to listen to God's word telling them to trust the Lord for protection and they looked somewhere else for rescue. At this point in history, the world was a very unstable place. When Isaiah watched the 10 o'clock news, the headlines were dominated by war, much as ours are today. But Isaiah didn't see pictures of civil war in Ukraine or Somalia. No, the world in Isaiah's day was dominated by a great world superpower called the Assyrians. You'll have heard of them. They were the great power of the day and they were conquering all the nations around them. And so as the Assyrians came down from the north, conquering all the nations before them, sweeping like a flood and carting off any any survivors into exile, it left the nation of Ephraim, Judah's near neighbours, Ephraim, very scared, scared stiff. But rather than trust the Lord to protect them, Ephraim turned to their near neighbours, the Syrians. They made an alliance with the Syrians to fight against the Assyrians who were coming down from the north, thinking that their alliance with the Syrians would save them, and even though the Lord, the Lord had told them that it wouldn't and not to do it. Of course, it didn't work. But by the time we arrive in uh, chapter 28, the Assyrians have all but conquered Ephraim, taking any survivors into exile. They should have trusted themselves to the Lord to protect them and to rescue them, but they wouldn't listen to God's word. And so, speaking to Judah, to God's people, Isaiah pointed to Ephraim in order to say to Judah, don't make the same mistake. Learn from the mistakes of others. And he needed to say that to Judah because with the Assyrian threat moving south down towards them, Judah were now considering making an alliance with Egypt in order to stand against the Assyrians. Turn with me to chapter 31, verse 1. This is probably the most significant verse in this whole section. This is what God says to Judah, his people. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. You see what's going on there? 
Uh, this verse shows us the direction of travel of these chapters. It's a verse which sums up the whole problem. At the end of the, the, the verse one, second half of verse one, Judah, God's people, don't look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. They've gone to Egypt to rescue them. And so you see, Judah was making exactly the same mistake as Ephraim. And it's a mistake that we can easily make ourselves. For them, it was the threat of the Assyrian army. For us, well, there are all manner of things that threaten us. The world is a scary place. There are the worldwide threats of global terrorism and global warming and a global recession. There are all manner of ways we can fear being overwhelmed and crushed by the world around us when things happen to us personally or nationally. And then, of course, there are the threats that come to us just because we are the people of God. I think of the the significant moral shift in this nation with changes in the law on marriage. It's an issue that threatens down the road to overwhelm us as a church. As we feel threatened by the world, the Lord says, trust me. Trust me and me alone to protect you and rescue you. But just like Ephraim and Judah, we find ourselves looking to other things to save us. So I want to hold my hands up and say, I I think money will save me. If I have enough money in the bank, if I've got a good pension scheme, I'll be okay when hard times come. I I think I can buy my way out of any problem. So we talk, don't we, about saving up for a rainy day. When the storms come, I'll have money to rescue me, to save me. Or we think education will save us. That's why we so prize a good education for our children. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying anything wrong with this. Nothing wrong with education. But we do tend to think if they're well educated enough, they'll be able then to get a good job and with it the financial security that will stand them in good stead against all the difficulties of this life. Isn't that the way we think? Or for some, image is the thing. If I look right, I can get on in life. So I'll have a little nick here and a tuck there, a bit of liposuction here and a bit of Botox there, as you can see, looking at my saggy face. I've had none of that done. I'll make sure that I dress well and look sharp, and that will help me get through this tough world. For many people, it is a case of my looks will rescue me, which is why it's so devastating when they go. Or or I look to my health above all things. I've had people say to me, if I have my health, I have everything. Now again, I want to have good health. But you see, if that's it, if health is everything, then we are completely devastated when health goes. Completely devastated. It's always hard. But is that going to be everything for you? Do you see how we look to other things other than the Lord to protect us from the hardships and struggles of life? Do you see, we can do so easily do exactly what Ephraim did and what Judah now was tempted to do. As the world threatens to sweep us away, we look not to the Lord to keep us and protect us, but we make an alliance with another aspect of the world to save us. That's where my security is. Money, education, whatever it is. So now here in chapter 28 and right through this section, through Isaiah the prophet, the Lord says to his people, He says, look at Ephraim, your near neighbours. They made an alliance with the world to save them from the world and they got swallowed up by the world. So don't trust the world. Rather, Judah, trust the Lord. In the first 13 verses of chapter 28, we see the mistake 
that Ephraim made. And basically it was this, and then we'll go through the first 13 verses and I'll show you. Simply, they wouldn't listen to God's word. They made an alliance with the world, in their case, Syria, and it resulted in their destruction. So that's a long introduction. Uh, But if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Ephraim's mistake, verses 1 to 13. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, chapter 28 we're on, chapter 28, verse 1. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Uh, To us, it may not seem immediately obvious what this verse is about, but it's a powerful image of the garlands of flowers worn on the heads of of drunken partygoers. And Isaiah chooses that image because Ephraim lived in Samaria, a mountainous and and fertile region. As you approach Samaria, the the area uh, appeared to have a wreath, a garland of flowers on her head. If you were to pick up a travel brochure in Isaiah's day and see the splash of colour of the flowers of Samaria, you'd have booked up your holiday in a flash. It was a breathtakingly beautiful part of the world. It was. But now Samaria was like a faded garland. Samaria doesn't look as attractive anymore. Indeed, Isaiah describes Ephraim like a partygoer, like a reveller. She goes to the party with a garland of flowers on her head and she leaves home looking lovely, looking pretty, looking attractive. But as the night goes on and and she drinks too much, the flowers get bashed and they start to wither in the heat and as the wine flows, both the garland and the girl wearing the flowers look considerably the worse for wear. And by the end of the evening, neither of them look very attractive anymore. That's how it is with Ephraim. That's the point of verse 1. And the reason she now looks such a sorry sight and so far from her former glory is verse 2. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. The Lord has sent a mighty power against Ephraim. He's referring here to the Assyrian army. And they have trampled all over Ephraim and left her devastated. They've been like the destructive power of floodwaters in verse 2. And so verse 3, Samaria, the beautiful wreath, the, the pride of Ephraim's leaders, is now a mess, trampled underfoot by this powerful army. It's an evocative picture of, of beautiful flowers trampled down by an army, now unrecognisable, flattened in the mud. And it happened all in a flash. That's the point of the second half of verse 4, like a, a ripe fig that looks so delicious picked from the tree gobbled down in one just gone one minute looking beautiful and lovely and the next minute you can't even see it that's what happened to Ephraim and Judah should take the warning as should we this is a very serious warning to God's people here the Lord says as he points to Ephraim he says see what happens when a people stop trusting the Lord and make an alliance with the world It is death for them. Church history is littered with examples of churches that have stopped listening to the word of God and have embraced the world, if I may use this phrase, got into bed with the world, and they are now unrecognisable from the world. Today, these churches only have a handful of people in them, if that. 
Some don't even exist anymore. They're, they're now uh, carpet warehouses. And those that are still there have no life in them. There's no future in them because they're under the judgment of God. See, turning from God's word and turning to the world is disastrous. Yet today we keep hearing national church leaders telling us to make decisions to make us like the world. That's exactly what Ephraim did and she did it because she she turned from God's word, refused to listen to God's word and as she refused to listen to God's word she became intoxicated by her alliance with Syria. Look at verse 7 and 8. So these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions and stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there's not a spot without filth. Isaiah paints a a pretty vivid picture that's uh, not the sort of thing you want to be looking at before half past ten on a Sunday morning. A picture of people who are so drunk that they stagger around and and throw up all over the place. It's a picture we're all too familiar with in in any of the city centres of Britain on a Saturday night as, as people stagger out of pubs and nightclubs in the small hours of Sunday morning, weaving their way down the high street, depositing the contents of a night's drinking all over the pavement. It's gross, isn't it? But it's especially shocking here because verse 7, this is a description of Ephraim's leaders, the priests and the prophets. And here's the point, I think. They may have been getting physically drunk, but here's the point, I think. They are completely under the influence, not especially of alcohol, but of the alliance that they have made with the world. So intoxicated by their decision to trust the Syrians, they can't think straight anymore. The world has that kind of intoxicating effect on people, doesn't it? It does on me. Like drink and drugs, it stops us from making good, sensible, wise and sober decisions any longer. I can get so enamoured by the world and all that the world offers me that I make very poor decisions over very important matters. Our nation is drunk on materialism. We've turned to money and wealth to save us and we love it so much that we just want more and more of it. And so we've seen verses 7 and 8 in our leaders in these last years. Politicians who are well paid and who are living materially comfortable lives but who so love wealth are so intoxicated by wealth that they have to have more. Drunk on wealth, some of them have made terrible decisions and that's why we've had the expenses scandal of these last years, isn't it? We've seen it in the church. Leaders who are intoxicated by influence and authority. Leaders who love the status that a high position in the church gives them. And they are so drunk on status and so desperate to have more of it that they are making appalling decisions. That's verses 7 and 8. The leaders, the priests and the prophets, like drunks, cannot think clearly to make good decisions. The more you consider verses 7 and 8, the more you consider it, the more powerful this imagery of drink and the alcoholic is. See, drink is a short-term fix to a long-term problem. And even if we don't want to go there, we keep going there anyway. Can't break free of it. 
And of course, like those under the influence of alcohol or drugs, these leaders, their ability to make good decisions is seriously compromised by their alliance with the world. Uh, When they do make decisions, they think they're making brilliant decisions. You just imagine, you know what it's like when you've spoken to somebody, talked to somebody who's, who's, who's lost their mind on drink. They won't be told. They think they know everything. They won't listen to anyone else. They think they know best. And devastatingly, they won't listen to the Lord. That's what's then expressed in verses 9 to 13. These are difficult verses, but if you look at verse 10 and verse 13, you'll see the same phrase is quoted, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Perhaps when Godfrey was reading it, you thought it sounds like nonsense. Yeah, that's the point. Looking at the Hebrew, the preacher and writer Barry Webb reckons these words are not words at all, but artificial syllables used for teaching infants the the letters of an alphabet. And the point is this, that these drunken leaders of Ephraim resent being taught by anyone, because that's what drunks do. You don't want to hear anything from anybody else, because they think they know it all. And they definitely don't want to hear Isaiah and the word of God to them. And so when they hear this thing, they say, it's just childish prittle-prattle. It's infantile nonsense. It's just do-on-do. That's how people become towards the word of God when they become so enamoured by the world. Uh, You'll find it when you talk to unbelievers. Some are so convinced that they are right that they dismiss the Bible as childish nonsense. What is so staggering, though, is that we find the same attitude to God's word in the church, from leaders in the church. So at the moment, when Bible-believing Christians engage with the big issues that are flying around in the nation and in the Church of England at the moment, we are written off as fundamentalists. That's a great way to write us off. And our position is undermined as childish. Bible-believing Christians are treated as people who have no intellectual credibility. And it's the church leaders who treat us that way, astonishingly. That's what was happening in Ephraim in Israel's day, in Isaiah's day. And so because these leaders won't be taught by God and because they reject the word of God, the Lord will speak to them in ways they cannot understand anymore. That's what he says in verse 11. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. See how that's working? They've rejected the word of God, so now every time they hear it, it just sounds nonsense to them. And now this actually, (laughs) literally became true in that the Assyrians invaded them, And as the Assyrians spoke, they didn't understand the language they were speaking in. But you see, the bigger point is this is God's judgment on people. Because they refused to listen to God's words, they could hear only childish prattle. And it is so tragic because, verse 12, the Lord speaks of a resting place. God speaks of a place of peace. But people won't listen to it. Well, look, that's the mistake Ephraim made. They rejected the word of the Lord. They refused to trust the Lord, but instead they trusted themselves to an alliance with Syria. 
And so they came under the judgment of God and were trampled down by the mighty Assyrian army. And then even when the word of God came to them, they couldn't hear it. That's Ephraim's mistake. Now, secondly, and you'll be very pleased to know very briefly, learn from Ephraim's mistake. That's verses 14 to the end. The Lord says to the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem, learn from Ephraim's mistake. Verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You see, learn, listen. Don't be like Ephraim who refused to listen to the word of the Lord, but listen to him. Uh, Devastatingly, the Lord calls the leaders of Jerusalem, Judah, his people, scoffers. Scoffers are the opposite of the faithful. The scoffer both chooses the wrong way and mocks the right way. So by calling them scoffers, we see that the leaders of Jerusalem are already very much like the leaders in Ephraim. They have chosen the wrong way. We see that in verse 15. You boast, we've entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. You see, the leaders of Judah were considering making an alliance with Egypt. We saw that in chapter 31, verse 1. Because they think that that alliance with Egypt would save, us, would save them from the Assyrian army and from death. They were saying, if we link up with Egypt, death can't touch us. In that sense, they'd made a covenant with death, they thought. But end of verse 15, Isaiah describes this alliance as a lie and a falsehood. That's a lie, you can't make an alliance with death. It can't save you, this alliance with the Egyptians. And we should realise that anything we turn to that promises to save us from being overwhelmed by the world is a lie. We should have learned that from the recession, but I fear we haven't. For years this nation has looked to money to save us. The recession should have taught us that money is no substitute for God. It can't be relied upon. As a nation, and I include me and us as Christians in this, we thought that so long that money in the bank will keep us safe, but it's a lie, it's a false hiding place. There's only one who can save us, that is the Lord. And so the sovereign Lord wonderfully says in verse 16, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. We long for a safe place, a hiding place, a place of refuge. Of course we do. This world is a scary place. There are so many things that threaten to engulf us and overwhelm us. We long for a solid rock on which to stand, or as it says here, a sure foundation. Well, the Lord says, here it is. Here's the Lord's promise, giving us what we so want and so need. Here is our refuge, our hiding place. Here is a solid foundation. And we find this verse quoted in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9 and in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we discover that the precious cornerstone of verse 16 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our sure foundation. Trust him and him alone and we'll never be dismayed. Trust him and him alone and we will be safe from the world. Trust him and him alone. Because, second half of verse 17, the lie we trust in, if we trust in anything else, it will be swept away. And verse 18, our covenant with death will be annulled. In other words, death will swallow us up if we're trusting in anything else. 
And when the judgment comes, verse 19, there's no escape, not if we've trusted other things. And so, as we draw to a close and in summary, look at verse 22 over the page if you're looking at the church Bible. Verse 22, Isaiah says, stop your mocking, your scoffing. It's the same word we saw in verse 14. Stop choosing the wrong way and mocking the right way. Stop it, for as you turn to other things for protection, you are turning from the Lord and you are bringing judgment on yourself. So stop, verse 22, and listen, verse 23. Listen and hear my voice, says the Lord. Now, verses 23 to 29 are all about listening to the word of God it's a parable about listening to the word of God exactly what Ephraim didn't do so do you see learn from the mistakes of others Judah was to learn uh, was to look at Ephraim who had turned away from God's word and put their trust in Syria to rescue them and Judah was to see how it ended in Ephraim's destruction and so we too should look through church history at churches who've turned away from God's word and turned to other things And we should be determined not to do the same thing. And it begins by us being resolved to listen to the Lord in his word. Let's resolve at the beginning of this new series to be people of the word of God. Committed to reading the word of God personally, to to studying it in our small groups, to being prepared to hear God speak as we gather like this on a Sunday. And not just to listen, but to obey Because here we will learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who alone is is what we so long for and so need, a refuge, a hiding place in in a tough world, a sure foundation on which to build life, the one who, if we trust, we will never be dismayed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to ask your forgiveness for the times when, just like the people of Judah of old, we are very tempted to make alliances with the world to save us. And we ask you, please, for us to hear this word to us today, not to do that, but to keep coming back to your word where we will see gloriously the Lord Jesus, the one who is a sure foundation. And we pray as we, as we keep coming back to him, uh, we would find your security and your safety and realise that everything else will never give us what you can give us. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.